Hi, welcome to the City View Phoenix podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. I love to win. I love to win whether it's at Scrabble, sports, arm wrestling. I love to win. It's just something in me. I love to win. We, my wife, uh, we, we have, my wife and I, we have a dog. Her name is Desi, and she had puppies. And so before she had the puppies, we had her get an x-ray to find out how many puppies were gonna, are in her because she's a small French bulldog. And so the x-ray showed two. Um, and so we took bets at my, one of my son's birthday on when the puppies were going to be born and how many puppies are actually in my dog. And then we had to name the sexes. I just want to tell you, I love to win. I guessed the day. And I guess the quantity, I was one off on the dogs, but I still guessed it all right because I, I love to win. I don't know about you, I love to win, but just as much as I love to win, I hate to lose. Anybody else there? Who else is a competitor out there? Who, else, who are my competitive people? That people don't like to play games with you. Who are those people? Raise your hand if that's you. They're just like, they know if you lose, you're going to be a sore loser. Anybody out there, just raise your Be proud. Be proud. It's okay. Being that, we need competitive people because if everybody was all about everybody wins all the time, which that's so lame that everybody gets a trophy, it's okay to lose. Losing builds character. I lost lots of times in life, and I hate it. I hate losing. And maybe you are. That's the kind of person you are, whether you like to win at sports, board games, activity. Most of us, we want to win, but how many of us, we want to win at life? We want to win at life. Today we're starting a series on winning at parenting. And how do we win at parenting? First off, I know that not everyone in here is a parent. I understand that. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how to win at parenting. And and this sermon is not just for parents. But it's for grandparents, future parents, aunts and uncles, youth leaders, coaches, It's this sermon is for anybody who feels the weight and responsibility of equipping and influencing the next generation. So if you're a coach, you have a great opportunity of pouring into that next generation. If you're a teacher, you have a great opportunity of pouring into that next generation. If you're a grandparent, you have a great opportunity of pouring into that next generation. If you're an aunt and uncle, your mom and dad, you have an amazing opportunity to influence that next generation. So today we're going to be starting our first part of the series on how to win at parenting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for today. And God, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would do amazing things in this room. Lord, I ask that you would move not just here but across the valley as you did last weekend, Lord. I spoke to so many of my friends who are pastors, Lord, it's just how, how amazing uh, you moved at their churches. And so, Lord, I ask, God, that you would move at CCB today, Lord, that you would speak through Andrew over at Cross Church, that you would speak through Jason Jason over at Heritage, Lord, that you would speak through Jared over at Desert City. And God, speak to us at City View this morning. God, I ask that you would encourage our hearts and challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in parenting, the days are long and the years are short. It seems like yesterday that I brought my kids home from the hospital. I have a 14, a 12, and an 8-year-old boys. I have all boys. And I remember that day when they said, Jeremiah, it's time for you to go home. And I remember looking at my wife going, with him? 
There's no instructions. There's no manual. There's nothing that tells me how to take care of a brand new 16-pound, can you imagine that? 16-pound child. Six-pound, four-ounce little baby. 14-ounce? What did I say? Oh, in my brain, I saw 14. I am also, I have reading problems even in my brain. Um, And I remember we put him in our car seat. Laramie sat in the back seat of our little white four-door Scion XB, hoping it's safe enough for our child. We drove home wondering what in the world have we just gotten ourselves into. And I can tell you, after 14 years of being a parent, I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm still learning. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still failing practically every single day. Laramie and I were talking. We're like, if we knew now, we wish we knew now. Wait, we wish we knew then what we know now. But we don't. We wish we could start all over, but we can't. But we can't. But we can't. But what we can do is start now with new. We can start now with new. And so I, I, I know that for some of us today, we have had good models and we've had bad models. Laramie and I, we were, I was a youth pastor for 16 years, so I saw a lot of bad examples and some good ones. I didn't see a ton of great ones, but I saw some good ones. And, and from those good ones, I saw some things that were key on what made them great moms and dads. One of them was they were not afraid of their children. They were not afraid of their children. And what do I mean by that? They weren't scared on whether or not their parents were going to like them or not if they took their phone away. They weren't scared on whether they li- their parents were going to like them or not. At the end, of the- Or the parents weren't scared whether their kids were going to like them or not if they said no. The parents weren't scared if the kids were going to like them or not if they said you can't do this or you can't have this. That was one of the things that set great parents apart. They did not fear their children. Good parents don't fear rejection of their kids. They love their kids. It's also the same with great coaches, great youth pastors, great youth leaders. They don't fear whether or not their kids are going to like them. If you're a coach or you're a youth leader, you don't want to necessarily be liked. You want to love them. Because we can let a lot of people do a lot of dumb things just to make sure they like us at the end of the day, don't we? Anybody ever do that? At the end of the day, you regret. You're like, man, I should have not done that. You see, the goal is not to get them to like, but it's to get to love. Good parents discovered what their kids' interests and talents were, not what you hoped they would be. See, I'm sure some of you have seen parents that make their kids become who they wish they were. You have those dads who are like, I I wish I was an athlete, so I'm going to force my kid to be an athlete. I wish my kid was this kind of person, so I'm going to make sure this. I wish my daughter, I could never do this because my parents always said no, so I'm going to let my daughter do everything I couldn't do. See, good parents sought the Lord and let their kid become the best person they can. My kids are all very different. Um, Judah loves athletics. Joel is Joel's sort of figuring out, he likes athletics, he likes sort of a lot of things, and we're letting him sort of like, hey, try these things. Ezra could care less about sports. He doesn't care about kicking a football or kicking a soccer ball, throwing a football, any sport, he doesn't care. But he is a great musician, and he's very artistic. I'm going to encourage that. 
whatever he wants. So great parents said, kids, what is it you want? I'm not going to force you. It's letting them have the opportunities, but also giving them the freedom to step out if that's not what fits them. But here's one thing that every great parent did. Every great parent, when I asked them, I remember one couple in particular, we said, how have you done this? And they said, we pray all the time for our kids. All the time for our kids. And so as we get into this first part of how to win at parenting, one of the biggest keys to win at parenting is to win at your marriage. Now, I know not everybody in here is married. And I know some of you are parents and you're not married. And I know some of you are parents and you're divorced. I know some of you are foster parents and you don't have a spouse. I know we have all those different, different pockets and different groups of people in this room. But the best gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. And knowing that I have all these audiences, it would be so easy for me to ignore marriage and focus solely on parenting. Because that's what the world would love. The world would love me to ignore the target and just point out a great thing. I was at this. I, I went and spoke at Greenway High School this week. Um, I was given the opportunity to do it like an encouraging talk, a motivational speech. And they gave away awards at two different times of this assembly. And I swear every single kid got an award. You get an award for being a kid. Yay, freshman. You get an award for having the letter A in your name. Yay for you. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? No, no it really wasn't that bad. It wasn't like letter A. But it was like, I felt like every single kid. I'm like, you don't, these kids have been online. How do you even know if they're good? We, we've learned from, from uh, um, uh, Gronk. I don't know how many of you know who Gronk is. He's a football player. He recorded himself in different clothing running his skill tests for his coach. So his coach thought, oh, he's still doing all the activities. How do you know a kid hasn't just recorded himself? We know they're totally not dumb. But either way, they all got awards. Not all of them, but. But the thing is, God, when you look at God's word, God's word gives us the ideal. It gives us the target. But he doesn't ignore the real. I wanted a target here. That's why I'm pointing you guys like, what is he doing right now? Is he just like, have wiggly arms? No. I wish there was a target because what our world has done is it's removed the target and said, just aim, just be you, just aim at something and just go that way. But, but God, that's not what God says. God wants the family to be what he's called it to be. And I know as some of us are in different areas and I grew up in a broken home, my parents got divorced when I was young, but that didn't make me, that didn't mean I was messed up for the rest of my life. Because my parents chose, okay, this is, this, they chose, okay, this is not going to work out for us, but we're going to love our kid the best we can. And we're going to point him to Jesus. And that's what they did. They pointed me to Jesus. And I can look back now and be thankful for what I have. Some of you at this moment, as you know I'm talking about marriage, you put your pen down you said, mm -mm, I don't care. There's nothing for me to learn. I'm not, I, I will never be married. Or I will never be married again. Or I'm not married, and we've all have, you can make a choice, but I want to ask you now, don't tune me out, because there's so much for each and every one of us in here. It would be easy for me to skip this part, because that's what culture would want. If you isolate parenting from marriage, it's actually stealing from the next generation of the ideal 
of what God wants. Part of my responsibility as a pastor is to acknowledge the real, but point to the ideal. It's to acknowledge the real. Yes, lives are broken. Yes, many marriages are not exactly anywhere near close what God wants. To acknowledge the real, but to point to the ideal. That's what the gospel is all about. The, the gospel is all about acknowledging real life. We are all sinners. We all have made mistakes. We're all so far and undeserving of grace, yet it points to Jesus who was perfect, who died on a cross for us. See, the gospel, the gospel points to us. It says in Romans chapter 5, it says we all were helpless, hopeless, were God's enemies, yet he still died for us. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how to win at parenting. And today we're going to talk about first, how do you win at your marriage? And we're, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter, th chapter 13 as our main source of, of the guide of what God has for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 says this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong. And a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I, and I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not love, it profits me nothing. Winning in marriage means leading with love. We can try to be so many different things, but if we don't love, we're just noise. It, it, we could try to be the best people, the most honest people, the most caring people, but if love isn't at the anchor of who we are, Paul says we're just a clanging symbol. So I could be off serving God and doing great things and serving the homeless and all this stuff, but this is all it is. If love isn't at the center of everything, I do. And you see, Paul goes in and he talks about some pretty important and some pretty big deal things. Paul, Paul takes some big important Christian things. He says, if you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, meaning this eloquent speech, meaning being this person that, that you just sound amazing. But Paul says, if there's no love, it's empty. Have you ever met those people? It just seems like they have the, the most amazing way to speak, but yet you know it's not authentic. You met those people? You know it's just a front? You know it's just a, Paul says, that's what it looks like. Paul says you could prophesy, meaning speaking the truths of God. A pastor could be preaching God's word, and I've met these people where they are preaching God's word, and you've probably seen them because they're the ones who get blasted all over social media. But yet have no love? Paul says it's nothing. You could have the faith to move mountains, yet if there's no love, it's nothing. Paul said you can even die for what's right, yet if love is not at the center, it's nothing. You see, parents, we could raise our kids to be the best athletes, have the best work ethic, to be great assets to our community, to be great people in the society. Yet if they don't love, it's pointless. Because I'm sure you've all seen amazing athletes that don't love. 
They're usually the ones that are the loudest and sometimes the best. And you're like, they're just a jerk. We've seen people who are great people in society. They, they can do amazing things. Give money away to the poor. Yet, there's no love. And for Paul to say these things, that means these things are, were evident then and they're still evident today. But if our kids are not filled with love and if they don't see an example of love, then what's the point? See, they got to see love at home first. I hope if I were to bring my wife up here and to bring each three of my boys, I hope I were, if I were to say, boys, do I love your mom? And I would hope they'd say, well, yeah, dad. And I, then I'd say, how? What's the evidence? How have, I, how have you seen me love your mom? And I hope they rattle off this, like, list of ways. I would expect nothing less. And then if I were to say, boys, does your mom love me? Yes, dad. Tell me how. Just tell me how, um, how much your mom and why your mom loves me so much. Why am I so lovable? And they say, well, dad, that's not the thing. It's not that you're lovable. Our mom just loves you. But Paul says, you've got to love, and it's got to be real. So in Ephesians, Paul talks about what is this love? What does this marriage look like? And, and I know that each one of us are in different spots. I know for some of us today, we're going to be looking going, man, I failed. Believe me, that's me. As I've been preparing these sermons for, for parenting, I'm like, every day I'm like, honey, I stink as a parent. I'm a terrible parent. I can't even, some of you are like, no, you're not. Oh, I be believe me, I feel like I'm that bad. I wish we could start over, but we can't. But we can start fresh and we can start new. And so as I've been looking at Ephesians, been looking, so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 now, this marriage. How do we win at our marriage? And Paul says this, Ephesians 5.21. And furthermore, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives must submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. You see, if we want to win at parenting, we've got to win at marriage. We've got to win at marriage. And I know some of us are like, hey, whoa, whoa, Jeremiah, that passage, those are some offensive things. You know, here's the, God set up the ideal. He gave us the target. This is what a godly marriage looks like. This is what it looks like. Our world has distorted it. Our world has ruined it. We have done that all by ourselves. We have distorted the ideal. Now, there is the reality. There is the all, we all are a hot mess, and we're all bringing our own selves into this world, into these things. So we, we make a mess of it ourselves. But, but, but Paul, God, God has given us the, the target. Love, submit. Love, respect. That's your target. In a world that's so desperately falling apart, it'd be so easy to just focus on parenting and say, hey, here's some great keys about being a great parent. 
The world would love to tear apart the family and say the family is not key. The world would love to tear apart marriage and say marriage is not important. The world would love to, for me to ignore marriage, ignore the key things about what makes a great marriage. The world would love that because if, if we can ignore marriage, if we can ignore the key things that make a great marriage, and you know what that does? That removes our ideal of God as a heavenly father and as the one who's leading us. If we can forget that there is an ideal of what marriage is and we can ignore that, then you know what? All of a sudden, God is no longer as much God as he can be because the world has just painted him in a different way. So my job is to say, but this is what God's word says. And so he says first, in in verse 21, he says, submit to one another. Submit to one another. That means coming underneath. That means, that means putting each other always first. Submitting to one another is a race to the back of the line. It's each and every one of us putting the other person first in our lives, in every relationship. It's not all about me, 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 my, 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 what I want, what I want, what I want. But it's each and every one of us. That's what Paul leads this discussion with. As he's writing this letter, he doesn't go, go right out and say, okay, wives, you do this, husbands, you do this. But he says, hey, imagine the world where everybody put each other first. Can you imagine that world with me? Can you see that world, a world where people put each other first? That would be different, wouldn't it? It would get rid of so much of our hate, so much of, of, of the racism and things that we see today. It would get rid of so much of the political disgust. It would get rid of so much of those things if we actually put others first. So that's where Paul starts. And then Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Now, to fully understand this passage, we've got to understand the culture of what's happening in Ephesus. The culture Paul's writing to. He's writing to this, this place, this city called Ephesus, which is over in the Middle East. And during that time, during the time of of this writing, there was this worship of this goddess named Artemis, or some of you might know her as Diana. And Diana is the fertility god. And at that time, it was one of the biggest temples in all that area where people would travel all over the world to come and worship this goddess. And part of the worship of this god was a very sexual kind of worship. There were worship prostitutes. That's, That's what it was all geared around. So what's happening in the time of Ephesus is everything about the family and everything about women's roles and men's roles are being turned upside down, are being changed. Women are not being respected. Women are being seen as these sex symbols, as these these people that that's all people are wanting to do. That's all they're known for. Men are just being seen as these users and abusers, and that's so far from what God wanted. And so Paul, Paul has this young man named Timothy who is preaching to this church, and it's so difficult 
because women are, are living this life that is so far from what God called them to do. Men are not living as men as God has called them to do. And he's like, Paul, how am I supposed to minister to the people in my church? Because my city is jacked. Nobody knows how to live how you've taught us to live. And, and Paul writes this letter. He says, first it starts with everybody submitting to one another. Then he comes to wives. This is wives, submit to your husbands. As to the Lord. It, it's this idea of coming underneath one's leadership and one's authority. Not that somebody is better or somebody has more control or somebody knows how to do things better. That has nothing to do with better. It has everything to do with order. It says, just as we submit to Christ, or just as Christ submits to his Father, it's this idea of coming underneath somebody's, not necessarily like rule, like they're this boss, but it's submitting. It's you making this choice. Now, in those days, wives didn't have a choice. The wife was only seen as the person that was going to bear children. That was her job. It wasn't pleasuring her husband. It wasn't really cooking or any of those things. It was solely make me kids. He had other women for all the other things he wanted to do. He had concubines for his little, you know, his side chick. He had all those things. Like, that's what he had. The wife was just his. And that's how she was seen. She didn't have a choice to submit. You're my wife. Make me babies. If she doesn't, he could easily get rid of her and go get a new one. That was this broken culture, which is, in some ways, our culture is very broken, too. So he says, wives, submit. Make a choice to come underneath the leadership of your husband. Not that he's better. Not that he's figured it all out. Because I don't know about you. But sometimes when my wife says, I'm following you, and I'm like, oh, gosh. She goes, honey, whatever you say, I will do. I'm like, oh, dear God. It's a, lot, it's a big responsibility. I don't want to mess up my whole family. And not that, but we make decisions together. That's what we do. I'm not some lord lording over my wife like, honey, call me lord in my home. That'd be psycho if I... If I ever do that, somebody slap me across. Jeff, you have permission to slap me, okay? But I'll do the same to you if you do that. But you see, what was happening in this culture is that wasn't happening. And when that doesn't happen, all of a sudden, what, what does Paul compare it to as the church submits to Christ? You see, things are breaking, and when one part starts to break, everything starts to fall apart. Now, this doesn't say wives submit to men. Because what some churches, some religions, and some, so, so, um, some societies do is the wife, the woman, is to submit to every man. That does not say that here at all. It is solely in the home. It is a husband and wife relationship. That's what it's talking about. And then, then he comes to the men. And he says this, verse 25. Husbands, like your wives. Oh, no, it says, husbands, respect your wives. Because we respect our wives. People are like, hey, honey, you did a great job. Good job on dinner tonight. 
Hey, honey, the house looks clean. Good job. I respect you. You're great. It doesn't say that either. It doesn't say, husbands, put up with your wives. It says, husbands, love your wife. Now, this word love is not the word. There's a few. The Greeks had, I believe, four or five different words for love. One is eros love, which is like erotic love. It's not the word he's using, even though some of you men are like, oh. And then there's the phileo love, like buddy-buddy, brotherly love, like, hey, husbands, be buddies with your wives. No, it doesn't say that either. Then there's the other love, I think it's stenos or something like that. It's like family love. Okay, love your wife like she's like family. No, 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 it's not either. It says, husband, live a sacrificial life for your wife. That, this word love is the word agape. It's the same love that Jesus had for us when he died on the cross for us. It's the same kind of love that Jesus put us first, our needs for salvation, our needs to have a changed life. It's that word love. And Jesus, or Paul writes, husbands, love your wife. Like that. Husbands, I think so many of us, we spend so much time respecting our wives. We spend so much time wondering whether or not she's going to submit to us and follow us and do what we say when that's not what it tells you to do. It doesn't tell you to keep a grade card. It doesn't tell you to make sure she's doing what God says. It says, husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved you. Live a sacrificial life for your wife. Give up everything for your wife. It means when you're, I was talking to a guy after our, our, our last service and we were talking about golf, and he goes, Jeremiah, I love the golf, but that's something that I've given up really for my family. He goes, I'd golf every single day if I could, but golf takes four or five, six hours. Depends on whether or not you eat afterwards. He goes, but I want to spend time with my family, but you know one thing he doesn't do? He doesn't say, hey, honey, I just want you to know. My buddy texted me, and he said, hey, do you want to go play golf? And I told him no, because you're more important to me, honey. So I just want you to know that today I gave up free golf for you because I love you. No, sorry, that's, that's a guilt-tripping, guilt-laying jerk if you say that to your wife. Your wife doesn't ever need to know what you sacrificed for her. Your family doesn't need to know what you sacrificed. But that's the call for you men, is to live every day hoping you get to the back of the line first. It is out-serving. It is trying to out-love. It is doing everything to the most that you can to love your wife and love your family. When your kids see a dad that loves like he should, it will change the world. And guess what happened in Ephesus? Guess what happened in this city when all of a sudden the Christian home became counterculture? Because here's the thing. For a woman to submit to the man, who wants to, okay, ladies, who really wants to do that? You're like, forget you. I am a woman. I don't submit to no one. Yeah, just as much as that's counterculture to you, for a man to love is so against everything he does. A man will like you. He will respect you for doing your work. That's what men do. We're like, hey, you know what? He's a good employee. You're a hard worker. You're a good man. Honey, you made a great dinner. Good job. The house looks clean. I respect you. No, she doesn't want your respect. 
She wants you to love her. Your kids need to see you love her. Your sons, your sons need to see a dad that loves his wife, that lays down his life for his wife, because your example points to Jesus. Now, you may look going, that's impossible. I've got to point you to the ideal, even though we're living in the real. We've got to know the target. We've got to know the target, and that's the target, is to love like Christ. That's the target, the goal. If we want to win at parenting, we've got to win at our marriages. And I know some of us in here, you feel like, then I can't win at all because I've already lost. I get it. I get the feeling of losing. Because that's how I felt studying about being a good dad. I'm a 14-year-old, and I'm like, I've already messed him up. Now, have I really? I don't know. I feel like I have. I'm, I'm reading these books and watching these teachings, and I'm just like, oh, God, I'm sorry. I mean, I can love my wife. She's pretty easy to love. But I get when you feel like a failure. I get when you've made mistakes. I get how some of you are sitting here now going, I've made too many mistakes. I can't be that. That's the devil trying to ruin everything. The devil's already ruined what a godly man and a godly woman can. He's, he's trying to ruin that. But when that church in Ephesus, when they said, okay, you know what? When husband said, and when single men when, when men, period, said, okay, you know what? I'm going to be different than my culture. I'm going to love women. And I'm not going to treat them like they're a piece of anything. I, I'm not going to treat them like they're just some lowly people. I'm going to love and I'm going to submit. I'm going to be the person that God's calling me to be. When that all of a sudden happened, something started to churn in the city of Ephesus. And all of a sudden, when, the, when women started to change and go, we're not just some sexual beings. We're women made in God's image. We're to be treated with love and respect and honor. We are valuable to God. When that, all of a sudden, when that woman, the, the woman of Ephesus, who was a whether they were temple prostitutes or just wanting to lord it over everybody, because there was this church was a hot, this city was a hot mess. All of a sudden, when these things started to happen, revival caught fire. Because when God's people start living God's way, lives change. Lives change. So wherever you're at right now in your life, married, divorced, single, you're just a kid trying to get through sixth grade, Wherever you're at, Paul says, let love be what leads you. 
Let love lead you. This here in Ephesians, that's your target someday. When you do get married, and for those of you who are married and you're like, we're struggling, you don't have, marriage counseling is amazing. If you need to go to marriage counseling, we'll help you. Come and find me. We will pay for it for you, okay? We believe in healthy people. We want thriving people. But sometimes it's just a matter of saying, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to put you first. But if Jesus is not at the center of your life, you will fail. You can try as hard as you can be to be the best husband or the best wife or the best son, the best daughter, the best single man, the best single woman. You could try to be the best, but without Jesus at the center, you'll never be the person God's calling you to be. So if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus today, I want you to to be thinking of that. Do you want to be that person? Before I get there, I want to make a challenge to the men out here. I was telling last service, if I was a single dude, I would want to go to City View Church. Because we have some of the most amazing, godly, single ladies I've ever seen at a church in my life. They love the Lord. They're rad at everything they do. They serve with reckless abandon. But my single men are some of the, I don't even know. Here's what one of the ladies said. They said, Jeremiah, where are the godly men at? And I said, that's a great question. Men, they need you to be the men God's calling you to be. Men, they need you to be lovers of God first. They need you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not of yourself. Men, they need you to be respectful, honorable, loving, self-sacrificing, godly men who put Jesus at the center of everything in their lives. Men, our ladies, our kids, our sons need men to be the men that God has called us to be. So I want to challenge you men to be that man. If you don't know how, there are some godly men in here that I would love to connect you with. If that's you going, Jeremiah, I want that. I need a mentor. I need somebody who's going to help me get there. Talk to me. I'd love to connect you. And if you're in here and you've been like, okay, Jeremiah, I want to be that person. I need my life changed. Jesus has never been at the center of my life, and I want him now. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would set me free. I believe that you died on a cross for me. And I believe that you rose again. Jesus, I ask that you would change me and help me to become the person you've created me to be. Jesus, thank you so much for changing lives in this room, for changing lives every single day. And Jesus, I ask that you would continue to move and change lives today. And it's only in your name, it's only in your power, Holy Spirit, that you do so. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Did you decide to follow Jesus while listening to this podcast today? We want to celebrate with you and help you with your next steps. 
Click the link in the podcast description to get connected with a pastor and your next step. If you want to learn more about what's going on at City View, download our City View app through the App Store or the Google Play Store. You can find everything from special events, outreach opportunities, and additional resources all in one centralized location. Links are in the description below. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out our website at cityviewphx.com or download the CityView app on the App Store.